Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Hey gang, welcome along. Episode 30 of the Howie Games. Once again this week coming to you from Jamaica and an observation for you. Everybody here really does call you Mon. True story, even at breakfast in the morning, the delightful lady that brings around the drinks. The lady says, would you like a coffee, Mon? What do you say to that? No thanks, Mon. Anyway, unfortunately I haven't been able to track down Usain Bolt. I actually found out he's not in Jamaica at the moment, but I have spoken to a few locals about what it was like here in Jamaica when Usain ran. He he doesn't provide hope, you know. He reinforces the Jamaican spirit. He just reinforces it. He do the same thing that Marcus Garvey did for Jamaican people. Right. The same thing that any leader that Bob Marley did for the Jamaican people. You know, he's just another manifestation of the, the great undying spirit that is embodied in the Jamaican people. And how do they react when he runs? When he's run at those last two Olympics, what Come were you on, doing? Man. Come on, man. Everybody's, if you're not crying, you're, you're screaming. If you're not screaming, <laughs> you're running out of the house. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, man, of course. What do you mean? They could help out if they try, try, try. If they would try, try, try. They've got to try, try, try. Hey, just quickly before we start, it'd be great if you guys could all do me a favour. So I guess a year and a half ago, I had no idea what a podcast was. I hadn't listened to one. I didn't know what they were. Now I listen to them constantly. And as all you guys know, once you start, you're hooked. However, I still meet so many people who have no idea what a podcast is, not a clue. And this is where hopefully you guys can help me. It'd be super if everybody listening thought of one person in their life who would enjoy the concept of podcast and explain it to them. Tell them it's easy, it's free, it's a whole new world out there that they'd enjoy. Obviously, yeah, it'd be great if you could tell them about the Howie Games. But hey, just tell them about podcasts in general. Download one for them, show them how it works and send them on their podcasting way. That'd be super cool. Thanks. All righty. This week, we continue with our Mark Webber two-parter. In last week's episode, Mark was making his way towards Formula One. This week, woohoo! he arrives. Mark Webber, you have won the Monaco Grand Prix. Brilliant drive. Well done. This week's episode looks at the crazy, crazy world of Formula One where the drivers are huge stars, probably no more so than Mark when he used to arrive at his home Grand Prix at Albert Park. The media, the fans, they would descend on him, myself included. It used to be an absolute bun fight trying to get a word or two with him. Well, there's no doubt who the star of the show is this weekend. Mark Webber is just arriving. He's been signing a thousand autographs. Hectic as always, mate. Yeah, it's a pretty busy morning, mate. Ready to go today? How are you? Okay, enjoy. It's a massive reception you get in this part of the world. You don't really get much time yourself, do you? No, not much. Look forward to Malaysia in some ways, but um, it's a, it's a, you know, the support's great. But uh, just so hard to keep everyone happy, you know. Best of luck, mate. Have a great day today. Right, thanks. Cheers. Episode 30 also looks at what's required to make it in the intensely competitive world of Formula One, Mark's relationship with Sebastian Vettel, who Mark thinks is the best driver out there, and all the ups and downs, and there's a few of them that he had along the way. Strap yourself in and enjoy Mark Webber AO as he takes us on a wild ride into Formula One. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go Thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I 
Come on, children, tread with me. We want to reach Mount Zion. So the washing machine's been taken control of. Yeah, it was frustrating you, me, mate. You mentioned a test. So what, what was the first time you got in a Formula One car? Was it Arrows or a Benetton? Yeah. Um, yep, it was Arrows. Were you pinching uh, yourself? Oh, they're just, it's like something you've never, Is you it? can never, ever, you know, as a driver, you just, it's so far away from what you've driven before. Is it? I suppose in terms of relating to other sports, I suppose, I mean, just the speed, it's like baseball, a pitcher, obviously, you know, just going up 40%. Tennis, like you know, just going from you know forty percent to cricket, I suppose, like it's you know going from grade cricket to then facing you know Malcolm Marshall or Joel Garner or something. It's like that's what it's like. You just go, is this it? is my god. And most of us, to be honest, mate, think you're probably not cut out for it. When you drive that thing for the first five laps, you're just like, this is just so far from what I expected in <laughs> terms of how aggressive it is. You're so f- the car is totally in charge. You are not on the front foot at all. Um, and most, you know, I remember Nico Rosberg, I saw his first, I remember I saw Sebastian Vettel's first. Seb was like, he just went, absolutely no chance. This is not for me. I cannot get near the limit of this thing. Um, and then over time, you know, give it a day or two, you slowly get your head around, you know, managing that beast. So, uh, yeah. It's a big moment when you drive those things for the first time. You've done your first Formula One test. You're about to launch a Formula One career. For those of us that never will, Mark Webber, what is it like to drive a Formula One car on its limit? Uh, yeah, so first of all, the seating position's really weird. So it's like sitting in a bathtub with your feet up on the where the taps are. I mean, it's a little bit exaggerated, but it's you're so... Emerged in the car. You're so deep in the car, the seat belts, the seating position, everything has to be at such a high level compared to other categories. And the reason for that is because the G-forces. So the G-forces are that high that you need to be strapped into that car so tight. And then obviously in the case of obviously large large accidents as well, the, the, the seat belts need to do a great job. But then you've got your helmet on, you've got your gloves on, you've got your balaclava, you, you really are, you need someone else to strap you in. You can't do it yourself. It's not like in a row car putting your seatbelt on. You need someone to physically strap you to that machine. It's like strapping something to your back and the next minute, you know, off you go. So, I always see you both yeah, grab your nuts and move them yeah, out of the way when they tighten yeah, that belt yeah. up. The, the actual, yeah, the, when you get the packaging down the bottom there is very important <laughs> to get the old, um, get the plums in the right position, mate, just because... you long 52 it, yeah, laps out yeah, the Oh, mate, I have been sliced, you know, in terms of when that belt folds, so it's the, what, the crutch belts, when they actually do get a bit off-centre there, that's a long, <laughs> that's a long stint if it gets you, uh, <laughs> does take your concentration away, mate. So, uh, um You've got to get that right, but uh, yeah, it's really the it's just the, it's the ferocity. It's absolute the ferocity, the power to weight ratio. The cars have got so much power. You know, when you talk nine hundred horsepower, you know, in the days when oh six oh seven, when we were, you know, nearly nine hundred horsepower, and the car weighs six hundred and twenty kilos. So, the power to weight is phenomenal, and with that we have a lot of downforce so you have a tremendous cornering speeds you can break very late so the whole thing is like nothing else you've ever done and the sensation for speed is very very high interesting just quickly on a side note I know you know Valentino Rossi and Jorge Lorenzo and those guys have had a bit of a snapshot mm. at, at, at driving the F1 cars and I said and what's the sensation for speed like obviously they're very different MotoGP and F1 but and they feel the sensation for speed is a bit higher in the F1 car because they feel a bit lower right. you know your eye line on a motorbike obviously is you know, is a bit higher. Clearly, you're you're in the wind, but um, they think it's you know um, 
I suppose when you get into the braking areas, you're a bit more exposed on a motorbike because then you start to pop yourself up behind the fairing. But it was quite mm. interesting to get their take on the sensation of speed on the straights um, being similar, or if not, maybe a sniff, a sniff more, just because you you're laid down. It's quite a bizarre position to be going that 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 type of speed. Um, and then, yeah, mate, the the, the steering, the interface of, of, of the gearbox, everything is just so 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 advanced and so superior to what you've ever driven before that when you get that baby on the razor's edge when you get it right on that envelope of 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 the limit of of the tires you know that's what our job is to do as a grand prix driver those two pedals we have and and the steering wheel that is our job they're our inputs it's like a a guitarist or a drummer or anyone that is you know the, the balance that we have and we've got the throttle and the brake and the steering and it doesn't look like it on TV, but when you drive those things, you're constantly, apart from being on the straights, but when we, as soon as we brake and as soon as we exit a corner, that whole period through a corner, we're constantly balancing that car on a, on a, on a, on a tightrope. And uh, that's, that's an incredible, incredible feeling. Is it fun? Is it, do you ever find, like, do you, is there time to smile in the car at all? Yep. There is. Uh, when you get things right, obviously it's, 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 it's intense, clearly like a qualifying lap, for example, which takes 90 seconds. Somewhere like Suzuka or even less, somewhere like at, at, at Monaco takes like 73 seconds, 74, 5 seconds. You know, I think our breathing rates change. You know, the, the, the amount of focus and energy you need, you, you, you need, you know, subconsciously that you... You need so much capacity to go on the limit round there that you your breathing rate changes. You know, you finish your qualifying lap and you're you're nearly out of breath. And we can do, but the Grand Prix seventy eight laps, mm. and you're not anywhere near as sort of, I suppose, exhausted. So in ter- well, we are exhausted, but in terms of heart rate, it's it's quite interesting how you can drive that level of focus and adrenaline into the sheer concentration factor is so high to get it right for a long period of time. Um, even if it's 90 seconds, um, and you get to the end of that, and you might have some with a with a lap like that, you might have some really small moments where it's like, shit, that was good. <laughs> I got that right. That was absolutely exactly how I wanted it to be. Um, and we do obviously a lot of imagery and a lot of mind management before we get in the car. You have to imagine these scenarios before you even sort of do it. You can't just go in and go cold and just go bang. This is what I'm going to do. So you work on putting your mind in a situation that you want to go out and execute a scenario, you know, and that's where the preparation of, of, of you and the machine being in harmony together and getting that right and sort of all, you know, I've, I've now got to go back out and I have to find another tenth of a second. Where am I going to find that? Because I've just done a lap on the limit and some bastard's found a tenth. He's gone mm. quicker. I'm now second or third and I've got to go and find another tenth. Where is that? Am I going to try and find it at the first corner? Well, no. It's lack of composure. I've got to find. I've got to break it down, and and that's the the, the rewarding side of the sport where you've got to really uh, the, the learning just never stops. How do you pass someone? Because we sit at home having a beer on the couch, <laughs> saying, "Come on, mate, just get past him. Just yeah. get past him." Yeah, um, it's. I suppose it's a bit like a when you watch a, a thirty a thirty shot rally in tennis. Uh, but on drugs in terms of how long it can take to because if I'm on the track with my mum I'm going to pass her pretty quick mm. 
But when you've got guys who are all so, so, so even and so good, that's what's so frustrating for us sometimes as well as a neutral at home on the couch is the same, mate, with his, with his beer. But we're following someone, it's like, you know what? Tip in the hat. It's like, mate, he's giving me nothing here. He's absolutely giving me nothing. I'm not getting, he's not showing me a chink in his armour that, you know, is there a little lock-up or the break? No. Is he missing apexes? No. Is he clean on exits? Yes, he is. How am I going to mix this up in the mirrors to try and put a bit of heat on him? Um, and then all of a sudden, like someone like a Fernando Alonso, he'll be mixing it up even in front of you. So he he's right on the, you know, s- small parameters of his job as a profession he, you will see him it's a bit like a spin bowler mate you know so what is really I'm not quite sure just right, right down to that point you sort of see, you can't see that educated I can only see that but racing you'll see that mixing it up a little bit just a little bit to say okay that's different what's going to happen in this lab and just breaking and, and these micro battles that are going on that you can't see for us super rewarding sometimes frustrating it's nice if you're on the front foot with it but if you're on the back foot with it trying to get through it is hard and that's what um is rewarding because when you come up against someone that's so when you're so bloody even and you get the job done you do get a move done it's 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 rewarding so that is we can't just put the foot on the straight and you know <laughs> you know it's like that'd be like walking down the walking down the crease and just you know smashing the stumps off with the ball in your hand you yeah. know you can't you know it's 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 it has to be a a, a sport where uh at that level it is Generally, for most of my career, it has been quite hard to pass uh, another guy because there is an ideal line, which we all know. We're very good at that, clearly. We know how to defend and make it hard for the guy behind. So um, that's the the entertainment and the fun that we have in the car, which is not always translated to the neutral at home. I think we're finally at the point of your debut. <laughs> in, uh, halfway through the second episode, um, I'll get people up to speed that it was Melbourne. It was on Minardi. It was Bedlam. Yes! Advanced Australia Fair, you've done it, boy. Fair Deacon. Mark Webber finishes in fifth place. It's a dream for Australia, a dream for Mark Webber and a dream for Paul Stoddart, the owner of Minardi. He may never have a better chance to score two points than that. I remember working there. It was absolute Bedlam. The media attention on you and front page of the paper was... Can Weber win? This is like, <laughs> yeah. can the 2,000th bloke in the world beat Roger Federer in yeah. his heyday? Yeah. But to the average punter and trying to jump up support, yeah. you somehow finish fifth mm. in that car, mm. which was pretty much like the number 2,000 beating <laughs> Roger Federer, to be honest. Mate. Well, at least making the final, maybe. But, um, yeah, it was a... It was a bizarre weekend, as you say. It was it was full on. There was a massive. I mean, you know, I'd never competed in front of 130,000, 120,000. It was a massive crowd. Uh, we had so many issues going on in the background. I mean, I'm in uncharted waters completely. My first F1 race, working with new people. Uh, it made I am just the water is just under my nostrils the whole weekend just going oh, how am I going to get through this thing mentally uh, dealing <laughs> with all the you know and pull out in the pit lane and then you're sitting behind Michael and it's like he's in the Ferrari and the whole juggernaut around Ferrari and you know Michael's just so composed and you know he is the Roger obviously at the time and the race was obviously it was a lot of retirements so it was a lot of crashes but we had to finish the race which we hadn't you know, in testing the car had only done like 20 laps in one hit and this race is, set, is 58 laps so we were so <laughs> undercooked on the car side as well and Stoddy said to me on the grid Paul Stoddard the boss Australian boss he said 
Mate, if you can just get this into the finish, that would be like a dream for me. Absolute dream. Just get it to the finish. I don't care, you know, how your pace is going to be. Or I just, you know, and he knew that, you know, I only knew one way, you know, it was flat out. I'm, you know, I'm going to drive as hard as I can drive my guts out and, and see what's left at the end, if we get to the end. Because I get, see, get, see the chequered flag was massively unlikely. So I had just to cane this thing while I had the chance. And Ralph Schumacher took half the field out of the first corner. Um, and Thank you, Ralph. It was good. It was like, mate, mega, good job. That was good. And, <laughs> and we're underway. And as the race is going on, I'm bloody in fifth place. It's like how, the, you know, this is like closing the race out with 10 laps to go. And then Mika Sala was catching me, who got caught up in the first lap shenanigans. He was in a quick Toyota at the time. You know, most things were quicker than the car I was driving. Um, and Stoddy come on the radio because the difference between fifth and sixth, because they only go points to top six at that yeah, time. that's right. And the way it worked then was, and still does now, that if you get constructors world championship points and where your team position is relative, you know, in the, in the, in the ladder or in the table at the end of the season, then uh, Bernie Eccleston would pay the teams um, proportionally, you know, the, the freight money in, 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 in the preceding season. So I quickly learned this after the race, but I wasn't doing any of these maths in my head, mate, because I'm just totally focused on doing the job I need to do. But... Salo's coming at me pretty quick and actually I surprised myself in a way I was like you know I was pretty composed I'm like you know this guy's done 150 Grand Prix but I don't give a shit mate I'm going to actually <laughs> mate he's going to have to work for this I'm going to really make it hard for him and Stoddy come on the radio at a similar time and said under no circumstances should you let him pass it's like thanks for that the rules have changed like all of a sudden <laughs> it was like um, and Stoddy was you know nice guy but when you when, when you knew things needed to happen I needed to do what I could could do. So Salo arrived, as he would do, because the pit ball was going, you know, nine seconds, seven and a half seconds, six seconds, you know, 4.5. I'm like, he's coming. I've got no, you know, I've got no more no more bullets. I can't react with any pace. Uh, and he arrived on the back of me. And um, and again, I just started moving things around a little bit and changing my lines. And, and then um, he spun. He spun at turn three on the penultimate lap, which was bloody awesome. So uh, and the crowd went up. I guess, mate... The, the thing for me was, I could again, first time in my life, you know, seeing the crowd from the car, just how, you know, in my peripheral vision and seeing bloody flags and people going, it was almost like they all come in half a metre to the, to the bloody wow. catch fencing. Um, so for me, it was very emotional, obviously, to, to finish my first race. What a day. I wish he was here. <laughs> Unbelievable to finish my first Grand Prix in the points. And I was on a two-race contract at the time then. Stoddy said, you can do Melbourne and Malaysia, and after that I need to get drivers who can bring sponsorship because you're bringing nothing. You know, I wasn't getting paid. I was getting paid to test the Benetton through Flavor. I was also test driver Benetton at the time, but racing for Minardi. So I was getting paid for my Benetton test work. Two-race deal. Two-race deal with Stoddy because I need to drive with some, you know, you're, you're useless at bringing sponsorship because uh, being sarcastic, obviously, mm. which I was. And then he said to me that night, mate, you're in for the rest of the year. No worries. And they brought you up onto the podium. Yeah, which I, I wasn't overly confident with, mate, to be honest, because, you know, to get on the podium, yeah, you, need to, you need to really earn that and be in the top three. Um, but obviously, I think with Ron Walker and Bernie and then, mm. you know, the whole Grand Prix thing. And, um, yeah, so I, was, I wasn't, you know, overly comfortable with that. But Stoddy was hilarious. He's like, mate, come on, mate, pour the champagne over me. Do something. I'm like, mate, <laughs> whatever, Stoddy. Okay, I'll do that. So I was like, you know, it was, it was more for... Oh, not not more for him than for me, but it was it was it was it, clearly it was a the crowd. It was just a, a thing of the moment. You know, the crowd were going absolutely bonkers. The grid was full. It was it was like a, a, yeah, it was equivalent of our Monza, if you like. It was our it was our Monza moment, if you like. Um, it was good. You progress and you you go to Jaguar, um, you go to Williams, 
which when I was working in F1, it was Villeneuve was in that Williams and Hill was in it and, you know, they were the team. It didn't work out for you mm. at Williams. Yep. What, what's it like when you're starting to progress in your career? And we can't go into this as much detail as I'd like or we'll still be here in three days' time. So I've sort of moved on a bit, mate. But yep. what's it like when you're starting to think, I've got the skill to compete with these guys. Mm. Uh, I've gone to a team which traditionally is a strong team, will give mm. me the car to compete mm. with these guys. Mm. What do you learn when you realise you're in a team that can't keep up with your ability at mm. that stage, for want of a better term? Is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah. Um, look, that was the Jaguar years were great because, um, you know, going from Minardi and then going to Jaguar, uh, expectations changed. So Minardi was, you know, hanging in there, see what we can do. Jaguar was like, OK, we need world championship points every weekend. And, and also your salary reflected that too. And now it's at the time, like I'm really now, um, I have to deliver. This is like a, you know, you're a valued member of the team, but also you are, there's a chance that you, you know, I was on um, a one-year contract at Jaguar with mm. an option for, for other years. After five races with Jaguar my first year, they offered me a four-year contract fixed. So things were looking pretty good at that point in terms of stability, but you still want to be in a position going further to to get yourself in, in a better team. Um, so I'm just like, Flavio, these guys are offering me this. Um, you know, to stability, I'm looking for stability. You know, not, it wasn't the, the financial side, but it was actually, you know, I just want to have the chance to to stay in F1 and showcase what I can do. Um, stay cool, Weber, stay cool. We do nothing, you know. And it's like, <laughs> bloody hell. All right, keep driving, just do that. So, like, okay, fair enough. So, you know, we do that. So those years were good. And then I was like, okay, Williams. They just won the the last race in um, in 04 at, uh, in, in, in Brazil with Juan Pablo Montoya. Flavio told me at the time, so you're going to leave Jaguar because, and Jaguar wanted me to stay, but I was like looking for it to move further up the grid. And he's like, come to Renault and Renault at the time hadn't won any races so and he was the boss of Renault too at the time and Fernando was there just arrived and don't go to Williams come to Renault and I'm like Williams are, you know they had more success than Renault up until that point in the last five years so for me it was like a tough decision and I really wanted to drive for Frank I was keen to drive for Frank and Patrick and so I suppose it was a bit of a, the, the romantic side of me that, that AJ had um, had driven there as well mm. um, in the end Williams they lost a lot of partners in that in that season and unfortunately you know Flavio probably knew some of that and he pushed me as hard as he could but I still at the end I made that decision which was a poor one on my side um, so that they were really the, they were tough years because I sort of replaced Williams with Jaguar pretty much I was sort of floating around the same position and Alonso um, was winning titles in the Renault and Fisichella won the first race at Melbourne it's like ouch <laughs> ouch so oh. it was like, yeah, that was not good. So that was tough, mate. That was more the tougher scenario, you know, the couple of years at Williams and then to get myself restarted again and then have the years at Red Bull. And when I, I said, and Flavio's like, Red Bull are coming and they're going to be going pretty hard. They're going to, I think they, you know, clearly they got, again, they're, all, they're all with us on the grid at that time, but you need to switch to Red Bull. So, okay. Uh, so we switched to Red Bull um, and sure enough, um, with myself and David Coulthard, they wanted some experienced guys to to start develop the team, and and then um, Red Bull started to, yeah, I got there when we were mid pack, and then obviously we 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 uh, went through a big big a big big phase in the most pivotal point of my career. Before we get to that pivotal point, which is full of highs and lows, when it's not going your way, and you know the whole reason I wanted to get into this whole Howie game singles to try and inspire people and motivate them mm. with, with stories mm. and to have success. You know, I've learnt doing this. That mm. People have a lot of failures mm. along the way. What did you learn about yourself, mate, when you're at Williams 
and it wasn't going your way and you were stuck in a rut and other blokes are winning titles with cars that you could have been in, I would have thought that would be a pretty difficult time. What did you learn about yourself? Yeah, um, really, really hard times, mate, um, just because, yeah, the momentum is, is out of my career. The, 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 the interest is out. The currency is low. Mm. Um, oh, yeah, he's not really driving that well and this and that. And and, and it's very easy to to be to be sucked into some of that. And, and um, but I, you know, for me, I just, you still, you know, it, I always looked at it, you know, and I always spoke to myself about it. This is just another test, mate. This is another test against yourself. You know, this is another scenario that you've got to pull through. It's part of the apprenticeship. You know, let's just hang in there because these guys now that are saying that it's not possible and can't do this and can't do that, you just got to hang tough. You just got to keep hanging in there. And, you know, for me to, to roll out of that phase, you know, clearly when you leave Queanbeyan, and you're like, you know, if you sign up, mate, sign up for that, if, you know, mm. five, six years in F1 and, and yeah, maybe the odd podium and, and come back. It's like, yeah, that's sign. We're going to sign. But then at that point, you're like, this is not, I don't want to finish like this at all. So you're then doing everything you can to... Con- convince yourself to stay mentally strong and even with some of the beatings I got also within Williams you know to say you know they weren't they weren't happy I mean Frank and Patrick were you know at certain periods really really tough on me um, telling you you weren't up to it you yeah weren't sure yeah right you were disappointed with you and right right so you know some some tougher moments um in my career in terms of dealing with management which was again was the first time that you sort of one of the first times that you that you experience as a professional that people can say you're doing an average job which is, again, back to a bit of tough love. You know, sometimes it's, it's, it's something you need every now and again because when you always deliver 100% or you've, you know, you're executing a perfect performance week in, week out, well, it's not always like that and you need to be told sometimes when, when you're not. Um, and then it's a spiralling effect, right, because you also know that you know, exponentially, you know, if I put this, more, this much more effort in, then I'm still not going to get much from it. So it's, it's, it is tricky to manage that. So... Mate, for me, it was like a bridging period. It was just like, I've got to get through this. How, uh, do what I can. I've got to continue to be, I had Nico as my teammate um, and I've got to, you know, clearly I was still being thrown against, at that level, you still got some bloody handy guys in the other cockpit. So I was still managing to stay on top of that, which was good. Um, so I still got out with my, you know, intact to be able to then go to Red Bull and still negotiate that, yeah, he can bring something to us, which was, the main thing you still got to look at a positive and say um you can't always think it's greener somewhere else there is someone else that's mm-hmm. going through a tough moment and you have to bloody you know hang in there and 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 get something out of it i think we might need a battery change okay that's never happened before <laughs> we need a battery change stand by Hope you're all enjoying Mark Webber. Next week's episode of the Howie Games, little teaser is one I really, really enjoyed recording because I guess as far as globally recognised sports commentators go, it is hard to top the voice of cycling himself, Mr Phil Liggett. There is the man who's won the Tour de France, the first to congratulate Cadell Evans, the first Australian to win the Tour de France. Phil has an incredible story to tell and he's a wonderful, wonderful storyteller. The episode is a tale of persistence. It's a lesson in sports commentary and a really frank chat about many topics, including Phil's relationship with Lance Armstrong. I've never spoken to Lance since September the 9th, 2011. How do I know the date? Because I was with him in Toronto. Right. Never seen, never emailed. He must have seen all the comment, good and bad, being made levelled against me. Mm. But he's never ever contacted me. Uh, knowing that, Lance, that do, you, um, I'm not sure. 
I just don't know is the answer. Uh, I, I, I don't know what I'd say if I saw him. That's Phil Liggett next week on the Howie Games. Now, okie dokie, back to Mark Webber. We have completed our first ever battery change on the Howie Games. You're telling me that people aren't going to sit through this. I guarantee you, mate, they'll be sitting through this because this is the bit they uh, will be wanting to listen to as well. You're off to Red Bull. F1 to me, when I first started watching it, Senna versus Prost, everyone wanted to know what their relationship was like. The last three years, does Nico and Lewis get on? With you, it was what was the relationship between you and Seb Vettel? And I've never understood it because I can't see how two blokes can be going toe-to-toe at 300 kilometres an hour trying to beat each other and be good mates. That mm. doesn't make any sense to me. Tell me about you've had a couple of years at Red Bull and then Sebastian Vettel arrives. Yeah, so... Um, Does it make it. sense to you that you're meant to be able to get on? Um, I, don't, I don't see that can, how that can happen. It totally does if you're fighting for points. So um, it often happens where... You know, the, the, the dynamics within the team, uh, when you are all got a common goal and you're still trying to get the car and the team to a winning position, then it's, 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 the harmony is a bit nicer. But when all of a sudden you come out the top of that little climb and all of a sudden we get to the top of the climb, it's a bit like getting to the top of Everest, mate, and there's only one stake there and there's only two of you <laughs> left and it's like... Okay, now we find out how much we like each other. That is a bloody great description. Yeah. So it's like, actually, we don't like each other much at all. Right. So in the mid-pack and other points, there's food for everyone. Yep. But later on, it comes down to a few of you and maybe two. Um, and that's where it gets tense because you're now... There's only one result that either of you can have. Um, so when Seb arrived... Um, we got on really well in 09, uh, got on as, as best we can because, again, the winning wasn't that frequent. Uh, there was a few wins here and there for both of us that year in 09. Um, and then, obviously, 2010, it started when we fought for the for the World Championship for the first time in 2010. And, and <clears throat> it got frosty from Turkey onwards, I suppose, which was around five or six or whatever when we crashed into each other at high speed. And, and I think, you know, f- what was interesting was it was... Totally uncharted waters for the team. They hadn't been in that situation before. So there was no one in there with real experience, particularly from the management side, how to deal with two guys going for a world championship together in the same team. And, and, it, is, and it is very rare. It is really, really rare. Normally it's different teams going for it. But like I say, the Prost, the two McLarens, um, two McLarens. I'm trying to think of other scenarios which is on the top of my head now where there's two teammates, obviously Lewis and Nico now, or just, just now. Um, but it's pretty rare that there's two guys um, duking, to get, du- duking it out in the same team. So that was quite hard on the team. And then quickly also engineers, mate, within the people working within our team, mechanics. It's amazing the friction that starts to build with like because they want their guy to win. Mm. And it's, it's nearly a bit of them and us already. We've all got the same T-shirts on. We've all got the same team kit on. But holy shit, mate, there's some, there's a, some needle on. There's some needle on in the team. So, you know, for me, mate, it was Uncharted Wars for me. It was Uncharted Wars for Seb. Um, so it was, it was an incredible season, that 2010 season, when you know, you know, I took, this, took the fight to the last race and Seb led the championship for one race that season which was the last one, mm. which is incredible, you know, when you think about it, because Lewis, Fernando and myself had all led the championship at certain times. And it was, I certainly didn't pick an easy year to fight for the world championship, you know, no, with the company no, that I bloody had there. But, um, uh, and we didn't get on, mate. 
you know, we didn't we didn't get on because it was you know it was showing your hand. It was you know, socially impossible to you, know, you can't go out and talk about you know family life and weather and what's going on and, and how's everything going. It's it is it is tricky. Um, even competitions down to you know helicopters from the track. Well, I got the chopper before you. Or whatever, you know, there was like it just constantly went on. Well, why is he in the first one? Why I'm in the second one? Whatever. So you wanted to try and, you know, wear things down and and um, you know, in meetings, take the headset off when he when he spoke because I didn't really value what he said, or vice versa. He'd do tricks for me. It was constant mind games on, and then we haven't even woven the media in there in terms of how all that went. So, wow. mate, so many dynamics. Um, how, how does a debrief work when there's been incident on the track? Because you guys debrief for an hour or two after mm, a race. Yeah. Well, how frosty is it in that mm. little hut when you blokes have half attempted to win a race, half tried to keep the other bloke behind you, might have obeyed team instructions, might have disobeyed team instructions? Like, yeah. like, like what is it? Do you walk in and speak to the bloke or do you physically and mentally ignore him or how does it work? Uh, so there's a secretary that really pulls a meeting together and he goes around all the departments and uh, the drivers are also a department, right? So both of us will talk about how we saw the race. Uh, but very frosty, mate. We, you can go through those meetings. You don't need to talk to each other. Right. So you can go around hydraulics, electronics, aerodynamics, all these guys who, mate, they're all prope- what we call propeller heads, right? They're all boffins, these guys. So they're all, you know, they're emotionally, they're, they're just, they see these two cage animals come into a room and obviously the adrenaline's still going and we just come in and it's like, it can be frosty, as you say, really, really tense. Uh, we give our debrief and we talk about how the race went and, like you say, that could involve um, compromising someone else and then it might get... Then there might be a discussion, which, which um, yeah, gets a bit... Could get a bit heated and clearly you agree to disagree and two weeks later you go at it again. Before we get to that, that 2010 season, your first ever Grand Prix win... Hmm. Germany, which is still some of the best onboard camera audio that has ever been played hmm. in Formula One, when yeah. you just went absolutely off tap. You had a drive-through penalty that day. Yeah. Um, it was. Yeah, it was, it was one of those moments in Australian motorsport when everyone was like, wow, this bloke, he's won a race. So that was us as punters. Must have been incredible from a bloke trying to get a yellow page of sponsorship on a Formula Ford to yeah. win a Formula One race in mm. Germany. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. I think because um, two weeks before Seb won in, in the UK and I was so livid, mate. I was just livid that he won the British Grand Prix, which is a track I'd always normally done pretty well at. So I thought I've got to take his home race off him if I can. Um, and Nürburgring turned out in the end also to be pretty happy hunting ground for me. So, um, yeah, I was just so... Because I had to wait so long because of those Williams years. You know, I lost, obviously, that sort of 40 or 50 races of of um, there and then, you know, the, the leaner years at the start of Red Bull. So when you had to wait another 50 races to try and show that you could win a Grand Prix, which did happen in 09, uh, relief, mate. It's just relief. You know, it's just relief. And I was so happy that, you know, it wasn't like a fluke victory. There wasn't any attrition. Everyone had a good day. Um, I was just, I'm just saying, I just knew that when the win comes, I want it not to be a, a, a race where people, yeah, but, you know, he, you know, he had that and he had that and, and you know, and, and, and Weber was there and got a result. Um, it was clearly uh, a day where, 
you know, I can look back and say, yeah, we, we, we controlled the whole race. And um, as you say, there was a bit of a drive-through. Um, and uh, from an Australian steward, actually, who gave me that, which was tidy. But, um, yeah, in the end, <laughs> got, uh, got the job done and it was just relief, mate. It's actually... I think, and again, if you listen, as you spoke about at the start of the show, mate, I think if you listen to most sports people or what, and when something massive happens like that, actually, that's the first thing that, because you put so much into it. And yeah, you're for sure you're pumped, you're excited, right? But it's actually that, you're sort of like, I've done that. I've done something I've never done before. And actually, and I've got it now forever. And, you know, Martin Brundle sent me a text that night, mate, saying, you bastard, you know, I did 170 races and now you're in a club that, you know, and I'm so happy for you that you've now won a GP, you know, um, which is, um, yeah, was 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 a, was a big day. What's the best part? Crossing the finishing line, seeing Anne, uh, having the national anthem play, uh, your dad ringing you. Like, what? What's the best moment? Of yeah, winning? and that's a that's a bloody tough. From that, yeah, that tough. Side, that's a hard yeah, question. Tough, mate. It's probably a combination of all that. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I think yeah, crossing the line, a massive um, national anthem. Uh, then family, mate, yeah. It's sort of, um, yep, yeah, all those those three. You've hit, hit the nail on the head, mate. They're, they're pretty, you know, because, and also, like I said, it was a long time between for Australian national anthem at that level. Um, I think it was, was it whatever it was, AJ in 81. Yeah, so it's a, long it's a time, big old it? hit out for us, mate. It was um, 20, pretty yeah, slim. 28 <laughs> slim, years. 28 years. Slim pickings, yeah. yeah. Uh, you won in Monaco, um, or a couple of. Is, is that. World Championship aside, is that what it's all about? Like Senna dominated this, Schumacher dominated there. Mm. I guess it probably shouldn't even be an F1 track. Yeah. I still love that photo of you jumping into the pool. Yeah, uh, yeah. Monaco is um, is an incredible um, event in terms of how prestigious it is. I suppose to win it. Uh, it's funny. I had drinks with. Damon Hill a few weeks back and um, we're just talking about stuff and rah rah and, and um, you know obviously he's got the world championship as a, as a, as a, as a world champion there mm. and he goes yeah mate but you won Monaco I didn't get that and I'm like mate I'll take a world title you can have one you can have a couple more Monaco and he said yeah but Monaco he said you know so you know his dad won it a lot and um, so Damon I think really wanted to win that one um, so I think that you know, I would love to have won, obviously, you'd love to have won your home race. And Jensen and I often speak about this because Jensen's record at the British Grand Prix is, is not pretty. And also mine at the Australian Grand Prix is not that pretty. But my record at the British Grand Prix is very good. Mm. And his record at the Australian Grand Prix is bloody good. I said, mate, how do we manage to screw that up? <laughs> like, I wanted to win in Australia and you wanted to win in the UK. And neither of us got near it. Um, I mean, I led in Australia, but, you know, in a gearbox problem with Williams or whatever. But it was... Yeah, so Monaco, mate, was was um, was very very special to win there. Um, I think the 2012 race was my best victory in terms of un- the pressure I was under, um, with the caliber of who I had behind me. It was raining at the end. I was on the wrong tire for those conditions. Um, so, um, yeah, I always that race in terms of mind management and how you approach it. I always thought it was me against the track, and not. I never went to that weekend really thinking. I mean, I did. A similar mentality for most venues, but that place in particular that you 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 just you never ever ever focus about the opposition. You know, you just really are. It's you on the track, um, and people say, "Why were you so successful? Why, you know, why did you love Monaco so much and you had so many good results there? And what did you focus on those races? Are two hour two hours long?" Mm. Um, and I said, "The next corner. You know, you got to focus on the next corner. You know, it's just so." 
being in the moment around there because if you got ahead of yourself around there, if you thought on lap five, you thought about lap 38, mate, next corner, every chance, bang. every chance, bang, straight in. So it's that brutal. So uh, I love that. I love that torture on the head, on the mind. It was just brutal. You talk about in your book, which made me laugh about um, the dinner at Monaco after winning a Grand Prix and <laughs> yeah. Jackie Stewart always being a very well-attired man and you probably not having the required wardrobe mm. to roll up to a function like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Which makes me laugh thinking yeah. of you rolling up to that in Monaco. Yeah. What were you wearing? Um, I was definitely undercooked, mate. I didn't have much uh, in the wardrobe. And Jackie's like, um, just how he'd think, you know, Jackie's like, yeah, but you had a chance to win this race. Why didn't you bring a suit? You should have bought a black tie suit. It's like, mate, yeah, that's like tempting fate for me. It I'm is, not gonna, yeah. so, so, you know, the mindset was quite innocent, but... Um, you know, I sat next to Princess uh, Charlene there and, um, huh. yeah, had a interesting night. It was good. I mean, I love the fireworks, mate. I love fireworks, so that was good. I put, a, put on a good display of fireworks and it was, as usual, you know, 18 courses, a bit of bit of rabbit food, mate, and um, it was, <laughs> I was still hungry when I left. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was um, – and I remember getting a note from our chief designer, Rob Marshall, who's, um, who's a great cricket buff, and I think that year we lost the Ashes. And um, he put a note under my door, and I've still got it to this day, where he said, um, he said, you lost the Ashes again, mate, but you won the Monaco Grand Prix. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, pretty bloody handy. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, yeah, it's a great event. It's a great event. And you're right, mate, never the like of those events. Those tracks will never be designed now. No. It's just part of Australian, uh, sorry, part of F1 uh, uh, history. The world title you got closest to, it was, as you said, it was you... Hamilton, Alonso and Vettel coming yep. into the last round in Brazil. Yeah, yeah. We're talking 2010. Yeah. So you're within a bee's whisker here. Who's yep. leading the title at this stage? Uh, I think it was Fernando oh. just after Brazil, yeah. You had to yep. win, I think, didn't you? Yeah, top two with Fernando. Also. There was loads of maths, obviously, involved. but um, Vettel wins it. Vettel wins it, mate, yeah. I think, you know, you know, I lost the championship at other races that year. All of us had two crashes that year in, yep. in events, you know, mine in Korea and, and, and Valencia and, and, and Seb, Spa and Fernando and Monica. I think there was – you can't go through 18 races and have an have a, have a absolute perfect, perfect, perfect season, but um, – yeah, there's lots of small things which you look back and say, you know, you, you know, you'd love to have had little scenarios play out differently here and there. Um, Do you still think back to it, or is? Yeah, you, you, you know, you. At that point, mate, you're still, you're still learning, right? You're still, which it sounds bizarre, but you're massively experienced. But it's like you're still getting your head around how to put together a campaign like that. And it's been very interesting talking to Nico Rosberg about that very openly. Nico and I've had a lot of good chats about. He said the difference between his first year and his fourth year going for it because, you know, um, was he learned how to do things very differently to try and get the job done. Um, and unfortunately for me, I just, I just, frankly, I just ran out of steam. I was just getting, Nico's 31, you know, and I was, you know, 36, 37, you're know, mm. coming to that point where I was trying to <laughs> get this job and I was, run on fumes mate mentally as well so um which is a bit frustrating but that's just how it is because i had a, I had a brilliant opportunity to and brilliant 
I had all my best success and results at the end of my career. I didn't sort of yeah. start early and tail off. I sort of, you know, I certainly had to work and get the results at the end. Um, but yeah, you do think about how you would done clearly. Yeah, what could I've done there? What could I've done here? A bit of strategy. Obviously, race starts were frustrating in terms of um, there was there was definitely an equation of me in there, but also I didn't have the ballast. You know, Seb had nine kilos of ballast that he could put towards the rear of the car, which obviously weight distribution sort of helps us start. All those small things, you're like, you know, at the end of the day, I did all the things I could do, um, and I wasn't. I didn't do enough. I didn't have enough points. Uh, that I had enough points. I led. I was number one in the world for certain. You know, mm-hmm. I led the championship for certain rounds for sure, with a few with a few races to go, um, but didn't lead when. Um, and actually, after Abu Dhabi, all four of us we went to another race. We're all still in the game, but that's doesn't matter. You know, Seb Seb got the job done. How hard is it to go and? spend time with a bloke that you've been butting heads with all year and the team's won its first driver's championship, you've won the constructor's championship, you've got to have a smile on your face. Mm. That can't be easy when no. the, the other blokes beat you. Yeah, it was hard, mate. Really tough. Um, you know, when you get that close. Yeah. I think it would have been better. And again, I've spoken to DC about this too because David Gardberg, quite a few, you know, Rubens, a lot of those guys never took they were out of it earlier, which actually sometimes might be yep. a bit easier My where word. to go all that way and just miss. Um, but I went to see him, mate, as quick as I could. Just the two of us in the room um, in Abu Dhabi and shook his hand and said, mate, it's been, I don't know about for your head, mate, but, and he said, yeah, he's just like, I'm, and he's virtually breaking down. I said, mate, I'm, you know, we're both just empty. We were just both, we left nothing out there and, and we tortured each other as best we could, but you just had to shake each other's hand and, and say that, he had a few more points at the end of all that and a lot of racing behind us. And, and actually, we lifted each other as well. There was no way we could have got, mm. I, you know, certainly me. And, and he says, you know, there was, you know, we, we, you really do lift each other to another level when you've got to go that hard. So you sit here now as a world champion, um, mm. which you did in the Porsche, <laughs> which is a phenomenal thing. Does not being an F1 world champion, which is, it's a negatively phrased question in what has been a phenomenally successful career, mm. I guess, to ask that question. Yeah. But does it keep you awake at all or it's not a relevant part of your mind? Does it cross your mind or is it I gave it my best and that's all I yeah. could do? I would love to have, have an F1 World Championship, mate, for sure. Can I, can I sit here and say, am I a, a, did I miss out on two or three world titles? No, they're the great guys. For me, Jackie Stewart, Nicky Lauda, PK, you know, Fernando, Lewis, the guys said... The guys that have got two or three, four, or, you know, those, Jack? Yep. Those guys are ex- absolutely exceptional. Could I have got one? The wind blew the different way. I was in that calibre. I believe I was, but I didn't get it. So I haven't got it. Um, so, love to have had it clearly. I did, if I look back and say how I, what I put into those years and again I led the championship up to again 12 to 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 the mid part yeah led it and then Seb just went on this absolute rampant finish and got the blown diffuser going again which he which he loved and he was very very good at that a lot better than I was and, and he closed the championship out very well technically user resources well those things you know that's all part of it so um you do. You, it's human nature, mate, to want more. You know, you sit there and say, you know, if I've got one, and I've spoken to JB about it, I've spoken to, Jens, uh, to Damien about it, all, you know, guys that do have a world title to their name, and it's like, yeah, but, you know, I'd love to have more. And it's like, well, <laughs> that's, that's how we are as beasts, I suppose. Us guys, we I guess always that's why want. you're there in the yeah, first place. Yeah, it's like, you know, so when I left here, um, you know, all those years ago, you sort of think, 
you know, you, you're a pretty hard taskmaster on yourself and, and it's only human nature to, to say, well, I probably could have left, I did, did I leave a bit out there? Not much, but what could you have done different? Yeah, there, there's, there, there, is, there is learnings from it for sure, which might have got you a, a, a different uh, result or world title. But um, I raced, I believe, in an incredible period in F1. Mm-hmm. I did hang out with Michael, Fernando, Seb, Lewis, JB, Nico. I mean, you know, I've got some photos that I look at and say, you know what, mate? There's some pretty handy boy. You're at the front of the field there and there's some, you know, yep. so it wasn't light. Um, it was really, really the, the creme de la creme in terms of some, some fast boys. So that I'm proud of. Um, and, yeah, I look back with, um, frankly, the experience and the emotions and, and the people I work with, and it gave me so much satisfaction and fulfilment to uh, do that profession and that career. Uh, was, was bloody unique, yeah. Multi-21. <laughs> you would understand this now working in sports television over in Channel 4 in the UK and here with us at Channel 10 that that is the best television I've seen in the last 10 years. I'm not a reality TV man and people <laughs> say sport is the ultimate reality TV. That 10 seconds of you and Sebastian in that room, mm. mate, it's the best TV I've... I think it's the best TV I've ever seen in sport. Yeah. Um, and, and people that will listen to this podcast that will have no understanding or interest in motor racing, you better explain to us the background of that because I can still see it in my head now. It was just frost, yeah. mate, frost. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Malaysian Grand Prix uh, 2013. Um, also, uh, just what's important for, for people who are probably a bit closer to motorsport, I've yep. already made my decision at this point. I've signed a Porsche contract, so I'm my, it's my last season in F1, but this race is relatively um, early in the season. And Sebastian and I uh, are going for the victory, which we did not expect. So in practice and quality, the whole thing, like uh, for us, again, uncharted waters the other way, we're starting to, we're a bit vulnerable. We're, we can be beaten at this race, mm. um, which not in an arrogant sense, but it's like we need to, the brief from the team was this is what we need to do to try and win this race and that there is definitely, definitely no unloading on each other because if we start to tee off against each other, we're just, we're going to just, really diminish our chances of, and help we're going to feed the other guys to have a chance to have one guy whether it's Nico or Lewis uh, beat us so we tee off in the race it's a damn start I get the inter crossover really good from an intermediate tyre to, to a slick tyre and I, um, I'm now leading the Grand Prix and controlling the race from the front and um Sebastian got some what we call the nice sort of undercuts around the pit stops. So he was, they were trying to keep him away from the Mercs, if you like, because he was under pressure from the Mercedes and I was sort of, you know, doing my own race at the front. Mm-hmm. And um, we had had the discussion before the race was if there's a call, uh, if it's multi 12, which is Sebastian will, you know, car one ahead of car two, or if it's multi 21, it's car two ahead of car one, ah. uh, close the race out. So after the last pit stops, which is generally the race, the race was. Gloves are off up until the last pit stop, which was obviously, you know, 80% of the race is done um, at that point on the day it was. Um, I think it was a three-stopper. And um, multi-21 comes. Here comes a radio call from, from management. Okay, so we're now in a position where we can control the two cars to get to the flag um, in the most easiest situation on, on our material, on our cars, on our tyres, on everything, because it's a 1,000 degrees at race as well in terms of temperature. Um, and then Seb starts – so I turn my engine down, we turn everything down. So you're control, leading, he's yep, behind yep, you, and the instructions yep. have said you win the race, he follows you yep, behind. that's right, yep. So we've just got another sort of 10 laps to do or something and um, bring it home. 
and I turn everything down, start to look after things and manage it. I don't want to just back him up into the oppositions because we've got enough of a lead now that we can, you know, do a, a, get the, the choreography right to finish the Grand Prix. And then Seb starts unloading on me. He arrives and he's like fighting. I'm like, you know, and there was also a few radio calls which weren't, uh, weren't, you know, uh, broadcast, if you like, on the, you know, uh, on the, on the radio at that time. Cause I'm just like, you know, what's going on? Um, and they're like, you know, obviously I'm not getting Seb's radio. I'm just getting my radio and, and, and my radio. So yes, he's been told, he's been told everything's all right. Everything's all right. He's been told like, well, it doesn't look like it. He's coming at me. What's going on? <laughs> it doesn't look so, like it. <laughs> so, you know, and I didn't react with anything. I didn't turn anything back up. I just left everything, the car, um, in, in, the, in the, in the softer mode, if you like. And he arrived and then we're having this fight, you know, so, um, yeah, and then he passed me and then um, he went on. Um, so, yeah. He, he wins. Was, he won the race, yeah. So... Um, Disobeyed every team order he's been given. Yeah, he did. Um, and obviously, again, it was a lot of radio chat um, in the closing parts of the race. Um, what are you saying when he passes you? Nothing at that time. Like, I'm trying to defend, but also the thing I should have done is turned the car back up and started going going hard again with the car, but I'm just trying to think, okay, well, I'm going to try and still try and win this yep. with the rules in play and defend yep. as best I can, but obviously he had everything screwed to the wall. So once he's got so, past you yeah. and he's going to win the Grand yeah. Prix, you on the radio at this point, sound of the team... Well, for, you know, because it's quite hard to, you know, with the cars that are even at that point, it's quite hard to, to overtake at that point. And the DRS is obviously in play, which is a drag reduction system yep. for overtaking RR. But at that point, it's like um, we've used a lot of tyres on each other. We've fought and he's kept his car screwed up. So I should have, um, you know, turned the car back up and, and maybe had a crack. But at that point, I'm just like, well, you're nearly in shock. You're just like... You know, and it probably would have ended up in the wall, and which I, you know, should I done maybe whatever, but you know, yes. we, we were close. Should've. We were close to going in the wall. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I was just the thing for me, mate. The over, the overriding factor for me at that point was how have we both of us how have we managed to get ourselves in this situation where we think nothing of the team. Hmm. We're like above. We've got 800 people working for us. Right. And we're now, the situation, particularly what he's trying to do now, like Seb's like, you know, nah, you know what? It's all about me. I'm just going to do this. So that was the situation that frustrated me the most. And in my head, I'd already made the decision, you know what? I can't be asked for this anymore. You know, like this is just so ridiculous. Like the situation we're in now, it's, um, we're just making it up as we go, you know? Um, so, yeah. So we, we finished the race and, and obviously it was pretty frosty to say the least on the podium and, and you know, Seb said to me, he said, mate, mate, I've just screwed up. I just, I've totally screwed up and, and, you know, he can say all that at the time, which he did. And then two weeks later, did a 180 and said, you know, do the same again tomorrow. So that's where his moral compass was, which, you know, for me, a little bit more tricky to, to do that. If you've, it's virtually like a handshake. If you're like, it's like, okay, that's, you know, mate, I can go hard with anyone. If you want, I toe to toe, we're going to do something. We'll, we'll have a crack. But if you start to move the goalpost around halfway through, for me, a bit more of a challenge. Hey, I know it'd be sort of strange if you're listening to this episode without listening to last week's episode, which featured Mark Webber on his way to Formula One. Now, if you did miss it, go back and check it out or any of the rest of the back catalogue. Now, as Mark explained last week, in some ways, he's lucky to still be here. They're designed to do a lot of things in terms of a crash, you know, impact with other cars, impact with barriers, impact with lots of different scenarios, head on, rear on, side on, rah, rah, rah. But they're not designed to go in trees. And, you know, you think about it. It's incredible how when people say you have, 
when it all comes before you and you think you're going to, you know, you could, you know, cop it, um, it does slow down. The frame rate was so slow. I was thinking, I thought of Anne, mum, my sister, I thought of all the obviously females in my life. I'm thinking, wow, this is, maybe this is it. Okay, let's rejoin Mark Webber. I've always been fascinated by F1 about, and it's never talked about prize money. You know, the Australian Open, it's in the paper before it starts, is what you're going to win. You know, it's, uh, we know what our cricketers get paid, um, and I'm certainly not going to ask you what you got paid, but do you win money for winning a Grand Prix? No, there's no, no uh, from, the, from the sport there's not. In your right. contract you can. Okay, so you might so, have bonuses if yeah, you win a Grand Prix. Teams will have their contracts geared up in different ways um, depending on how they... Um, yeah, some okay. guys are just on a base contract. Points aren't involved, or or or, or podiums aren't involved. You know. and so, if you're winning a Grand Prix, is it? Are we talking five figures, six figures, or seven figures? Ish. Um, I can't ask you that. You can, mate. Yeah, it's all right. I mean, um, Red Bull were more um, bonus orientated, right? So, um, other teams like, uh, well, I'm led to believe. Um, well, I saw a Ferrari contract because I was very really close to signing them in 2012. So right. um, I know how they, what uh, their, their their contracts were like in terms of base and then against payments. Um, so they'll also Ferrari were much more um, base orientated. Right. But yeah, winning um, it was seven figures for winning a Grand right. Prix. Yeah. Okay. I haven't got a seven figure contract ever, <laughs> so I'm just trying to figure out. So that's a million plus. Okay. So m- yeah. money. You've come from very little and your dad having to stump up 100000 Is it bizarre? Is it strange? What's it like when you start looking at your bank account or start looking at contracts that are in the multi-millions of dollars? Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it is abnormal, no question about it. When Again, when I started to get the first, uh, let's call them the, the bigger contracts of my career, I yep. said to Flavia, I'm happy. I'm, I'm fine. We don't, we don't. Let's just go racing. No, no, no. They. This is the value. This is the market value. This is what you're worth. This is what the team have. This is what they can afford as well. Right. Um, so that's where it was great to have someone like him. Um, you know, I've, I'm a lot better at that now in terms of doing my. I do all of my own stuff now. But mm. in the front, in the in front of all that, um, getting the market value of what what was the going rate at the time. Um, didn't have a great feel for that. So, yeah, mate. And then you see it and you're like, okay, um, you know, the decimal point moves around. And that's, you know, a different experience clearly that, um, you know, you didn't – it wasn't, the, it wasn't the, the motivation about going there. The motivation for me was racing on the best tracks in the world against the hardest guys in the world and see if I can do this. How, how, how well can I go at this? Um, that's a byproduct, obviously, of things happening. So – Clearly, you know, commercially, it's a, it's a very, very big sport um, and the drivers are a key part of that. So, uh, yeah, that, that happens pretty fast. And then, but, you know, you just, well, you don't change, do you? I mean, nothing, well, nothing really, you're not, you don't change as a person. I mean, you know, money can screw a lot of people up. There's no question about it. People do have problems with handling uh, different types of money because uh, it becomes a challenge. And so how did, my, how did you not change? How, how... Because I've spent enough time in the Formula One paddock. It's um, money. It's private jets. It's ridiculous sunglasses. If you're European, <laughs> it, it's white jeans and white shirts. Yeah. It's, it's models, Euro trash, mate. It's models. Euro trash. It, it yeah. is. How, how did you not 
And did you ever uh, start going down that path at all? Uh, look, I think... I don't think I did. Um, and yeah, might, did and might say something different, but um, yeah. Uh, oh, look, I just wasn't comfortable with it, mate. I right. just, you know, dad, just what I, I grew up with, my, my, my grandfather's qualities, my dad's qualities. Yeah, I'm getting paid to do a job. It's very different to what I probably expected, um, you know, in, in, in a commercial sense, but I'm still am what I am. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I don't like gambling. I don't have an issue with that. I didn't drink alcohol. I couldn't drink alcohol really in my career, if mm. you like. I didn't have any... Uh, the burn rate and the outgoings were were, were, were very modest um, because I didn't need to strive for anything that was, call it materialistic or call it, you know, look for extra buzzes or look for different things that, that, that gave me a chance to... Uh, to change with that money yeah for sure I had more choices mm. I had uh, scenarios to make things a bit more comfortable for myself and and, and, and for people that are close to me um, and travel in different ways because you know I might have 250 nights a year out of a ho- in hotel or 240 nights in certain parts of F1 seasons in hotels um, and an immense amount of travel so you want that's part of your battery so you want to look at how you can maybe t- make your travel a bit easier for yourself um, but you know, I never, ever want to rub people's nose in it that if things have gone, um, you know, in a way where I'm a bit more comfortable and you, you, you get paid to do a job, um, but I know how quickly that can go off. You know, it can be over in a flash. And, um, and staying true and humble and trying to be, you know, which, you know, was it an effort? I hope it wasn't. I don't believe it was too much of an effort because of just the people that I had around me, not to to to, to have the chance to say, mate, you know, well, what are you? Not, you're not any different. I mean, you know, we, we see some sports people here and there that they, they totally think they're something different when it does change like that. Well, they're totally the same individual. M- m- most they, F1 drivers. Yeah. yeah, well... Be fair to say. Yeah, but when... Yeah, most of them do... do <laughs> After their careers, I think they're still not bad blokes, but they can get caught up in, they can get caught up in a, I suppose, in a bit of a, a bit of a bubble in there. And um, <laughs> but it's it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's incredible. And I've been lucky to have great counsel, mate. You know the Jackie Stewart's, the Nicky Lauders, mm. you know the people that have, um, you know the, these guys are they're, they're savvy guys, and um, they've they've seen a lot of movies, they've done a lot of things, um, tragic. Both of them been through some tough mm. moments, um, which again makes you very rounded, and and they're the things that actually you know health's number one, family, it doesn't matter you know what people think of you, how they, you know it's it, you you peel it back to what's real in life, and it's 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 actually pretty pretty simple. We're nearly at the end of this. I want to get your views on where you think F1 needs to go, but you've mentioned some huge pillars in sport, so just um just give me a few words to describe what these people are really like probably the best way to do it uh michael schumacher uh well incredibly driven uh all over the details hungry tenacious uh a warrior hated losing uh and would go to all levels to to make sure that he'd he'd win yeah lewis uh yeah polarizing isn't he he's very polarizing he's not for everyone definitely marmite or vegemite in terms of uh Mm. uh Natural, natural gift, natural flair, talent, exceptional talent. Uh, got a lot of strings in his bow. Fast in the wet, fast on all tracks. Um, you know, he can pull any club out of the bag and he can make it work. Um, 
and he loves to cause a bit of drama in his life too and I think that puts a bit of pressure on himself so he loves to put bizarre scenarios out there which in some ways sort of fires himself up so um, not the work ethic that Michael had um, but he likes to do the minimum to get the job done Sebastian? Seb's the opposite uh, extremely private so Lewis is not private we know that uh, Seb <laughs> is notoriously private in some ways I'd like to see him open up even more um, to give more back because it's hard for people to really to come towards you if you don't give them something back. So um, I'd like him to to be a little bit less private. Uh, work ethic phenomenal. Burns himself on the on the on the resources and and with the people and just how how strong he is on that. Um, not as overall as talented as, as as Lewis, but technically and using resources and understanding the. You know, we look at so much science in sport now and understanding mm. how you perform better as an athlete and as a person. Seb can pull that into his own head very, very well himself. He doesn't need all the, the boffins to, to pull that together for him. So he's incredible on that on, on that side. Um, and when he gets a sniff, when he's strong, he's very, very dangerous. When he's on the back foot, you know, a little bit uh, can get flaky, in which I tried as much as I could to get him in that window. But you know, sometimes when then when he gets a sniff and gets the arm around him and gets a bit of love, he can be. You know, we saw some of his first laps in executing Grand Prix mm. is very very good. Nico, again, work rate uh, exceptional. Again, both Germans, which you'd expect that the German work rate they work on the they're very very culturally very different how they go about their job. You know. Uh, they're always finding solutions and, and working on the weaknesses they have and having the support from people to get the job done, whether it's the mental support, whether it's the, the operational support from the team. Um, so he, uh, bloody handy in the end. I mean, a very, very good record in Formula One um, and drove himself to levels, I think, in that last year. That's why this retirement's happened because I think he had to take himself into a stratosphere that he never thought he could operate at um, you know, mentally and physically to get himself in that window to, 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 to beat Lewis, um, which you've got to admire. He's done a great job with that. Elegant, very, very good off, off track, a uh, great ambassador for our sport. Um, so for me, pretty composed individual. A um, few meltdowns here and there. Obviously, they had their, their lover's tiffs on track, a few crashes, but he's, um, he's got that finish... More German than Finnish, but he's yeah. Um, yeah, pretty measured guy. Talking about Finnish, the bloke that I've always found the hardest bloke to interview in world sport, <laughs> Kimi Räikkönen. I dread it every time I have to do it. Yeah, yeah, um, fascinating guy, isn't he? I think um, he doesn't. Uh, he just doesn't see the reason that he needs to do media. Doesn't so care. Doesn't want to be involved in in the off track <laughs> side of it. Loves putting the helmet on. Loves racing. I think. I think we. Do we think he... We haven't even found that out of Kimi, you know? No. Oh, I don't know. I like the racing. I don't know. It's okay. I push. That's it. I mean, we don't know. No, we don't. We don't know if he... You know, but he's over his best now. Um, Is it true he's a loose cannon when he's on the turps? Yeah. Oh, he... You know, he... Um, Is he a good fellow when he's on the turps? He goes all lovey, yeah. Does he? He goes all lovey, yeah. He, um, <laughs> yeah, he gets all... And then he goes... So he has a, he has a window of love and then he goes all bonkers at the end so um but mate you would not want to go toe-to-toe with him on on the hard stuff like he's just he's just yep he's on the he's on the he's on the hard stuff and um he goes goes real hard on it so um yep 
He can drink. Bernie Eccleston? Bernie is... Uh, I never had an issue with Bernie. Um, he was always very good to me. Um, he, in a funny sort of way... I mean, he's very old school, clearly, because of mm. his age. Uh, he's been at the helm of the sport for so, so long. Um, and not all drivers had a good relationship with him because culturally, again, they didn't really... Bernie's not close to anyone. Let's not kid ourselves. No one's close to Bernie. So, you know, in terms of him being tight with people, um, it's, it's, you could count it on maybe a couple of fingers. Um, but to at least get to the second and third sentence with him in a conversation is already doing something, which, I, you know, for me uh, was possible because talk about motorbikes or speedway or other people that that he knew um and when i could do that with him which was which and i've had dinners with him and 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 we get to chat chat about all sorts of things and clearly a sharp as a razor sharp as a razor he's all over everything he's watching things he's watching other sports he's watching other people he knows but he's he's a world champion he's the master he's the chess master at he doesn't talk any more than he needs to Mm. he doesn't you know, he's, he's, he's our worst nightmare now in terms of, you know, on the other side, obviously asking a question and, um, you know, he will give you the absolute minimum and also maybe a big chance to make you look like a twat in the meantime. So um, <laughs> old school, handshakes, loyal. If he says he's going to do something, it will happen. Um, if he's on the wrong side, if you're on the wrong side of him, um, you know, for example, all the podium interviews I've done on in F1, yep. they're done through Bernie on Sunday morning with a text message. Are they? Done. Right. Do you want to do it today? Yes. Good. Up you go. And then um, I always said to him, I said, Bernie, I... I you never pay me. I do this, and I've never, see, I've never invoiced you. You know, and he knows full well. You know that um, I'm only joking, and and uh, you know, for me to get up there and, and get a bit more out of the car and drivers, which mm. I enjoy doing, and, and helping the sport, and, and having a bit of fun with it. Um, but he paid me in a different way, in terms of just the loyalty, and and he said someone will be, someone will be in touch, and they were, and it was, it was a really, really touching how he did that. Yeah, I obviously he was my first boss. Um, and the only time I ever dealt with him, I was coming out of the loo and he was going into the loo. And he looked at me and he said, what do you do for me, son? And I explained to him, he said, make sure you do it well. And that was it. <laughs> that yep. was the only dealings I had with him. Can Dan Ricciardo become an F1 world champion, mate? Totally. Totally. Um, he's in the right window. Um, he's, he's, his determination and drive is there. Um, totally all round. Um, I think that... Uh, He's got the composure. Uh, I don't see anything that can can really not not make it happen for him. Um, you know, he's now at, in that club, which we all know. You know, that last part of it's down to two or three. Yeah. Um, which which um, uh, you know, it's it's fine to knock around in that in that in that in the podiums and get in the wins, um, which he's doing now. And then we, now he's got to take a championship deep into the which he can do you yep. can totally do um and that could happen this year totally could happen this year those blokes that i mentioned i should have mentioned alonzo as well and i know there's so many different components to it but who's the best you raced against if you again choose one and don't yeah. edge it with who's the best fernando sunday afternoon right so pace wise he's not he's not the man on saturday afternoon for one lap still phenomenal but but sundays Mate, you got him in your mirrors for two hours, you're earning your cash. He's like, 
he's just yep he's just relentless of all the people you've ever met in Formula One and you've met movie stars and rock stars and athletes and Valentino and Lance who's been the one person that's impressed you the most uh, well Valentino would certainly be up there um, incredible intellect big knowledge always striving for you know that's the things that the greats are good at as well they always take an opportunity to learn more as well which is which is phenomenal Michael did that Lance did that I mean obviously Lance is you can see is he great or not you know mm. arguably not but you know um, everyone's divided on that mm. um, Michael Jordan Valentina Rossi Roger had Roger reinvents himself you know you know as he come up with these shots and and, and does <laughs> things you know that's what the great guys do so I think for me it's it's really um, Mate, I love Nicky Lauder and Jackie Stewart just from, from an industry perspective for me, how they had to invent them, reinvent themselves. And when we talk about funerals before, Jackie going to a funeral every four months, that's to talk about him about that for his mind management was, was clearly exceptional. Nicky Lauder with the airline crash coming back from, you know, how he, you know, his own crash would nearly killed him. Um, and then Roger and Valentino on... Um, on, on how they went about their sports um, and Valentino dealing with, with Marco as well mm. because that was, you know, to come back from that, I mean, you cannot admire a guy any more than to come back from that um, and and the love that he has for the sport. He loves it. I, I'm worried about him going too long and, 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 and making the numbers up. I hope, you know, clearly that doesn't happen, but I'm worried because he's so passionate and hungry about it. But, mate, I'm a sports fan. I love it. Um, and, yeah, it's brilliant to watch those guys at that level. And we're talking about that last, last, last 1%. These club, this club is just so, so – they're once in, in, in 10 or 15-year individuals. You know, they, they, they change the landscape. They, they disrupt the whole sport. Um, and when we do another podcast, mate, mm. next year, mm. we need to talk about how we're going to have more Australians – do that because it's a bit slim on the ground for us internationally at the moment and I'm not happy about that and I want us to be back on the radar on lots of different spectrums and genres that we can deliver again and work that bit out for those out there that want to achieve whether it be an athlete or a bloke trying to do well in his high school or a, whatever it may be can you summarise it uh, and it, career of experiences into one point? That's a very difficult question to answer. Um, What's the one thing you need to succeed do you reckon? That's an easier way to ask the question. Well passion. Right. Passion and enthusiasm. I want to see enthusiasm from someone. I want that intensity and the enthusiasm. If you can't bring me the enthusiasm and passion and the can-do approach uh, we're going to struggle. Your sport that you love we haven't even spoke about the fact you're a world champion in a Porsche either, which that's for the next podcast. Yep. Um, your sport that you love, is it heading in the right direction? And this is a two-minute question, not an hour, because I'm sure he'd give me an hour. Is it going the right way, F1? I know in the last few years you probably haven't enjoyed the way it's gone. Uh, it's a great opportunity. Um, Media digitally, you know the whole the whole concept of us opening the sport up for more access, which is uh, which is a great opportunity. Getting that volume button right in terms of having too much access, which Bernie was clearly you know on the lower end because that's how he loved it, which worked for some people and and still quite a few in the end. But getting that right, um, the drivers we have to have the drivers are the heroes. We have to have the people turning on and watching 
the heroes do their sport and that's what people gravitate to that we don't gravitate to I mean technology to a degree we do but we have to have the drivers week in week out being the heroes um, and that's what uh, we've got to keep our eye on final question after a couple of episodes and two hours how does one perfect the five o'clock shadow because for 10 years you've done it <laughs> you've done it for 10 years you've done the movie star yeah. look for 10 years uh, once uh, once every four days mate four or five days over shave so um i'm often i'm often clean clean shaven but right. it's over pretty quick so uh but there's a few bit of bit of a Bit of, bit of pepper coming through, or salt, mate, I should say now, um, which is fine. Uh, I hate shaving, mate. I just hate, yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> but you're running one today, Yeah, today, I am. Mate. Well, yeah. the big bash is finished, so I'm allowed to. Hey, mate, um, to, to get the opportunity to chat with you in hectic times when you're about to get into cars and Formula 1 to you joining us at Channel 10 and actually getting to know you, which we did last year, to sitting down with you today, it's blown me away how generous you've been with your time. The idea of this podcast is to try and motivate and inspire people and I'm sure people from all genres of life are going to listen to this and really take something out of it. So, mate, I appreciate your time and congratulations on a wonderful career to this point and no doubt there's a lot moving forward, but, mate, I couldn't be more stoked to sit here and chat with you and you've been so generous. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Howie. No worries. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure, mate, and um, good on you for doing these podcasts. Gives people a chance instead of the time limits we've always generally got. Um, well done, buddy. Shit hot. Good on you, mate. Peace. He's a beauty, Mark Webber. Fiercely competitive, no doubt about that, but one of the world's nicest blokes. So thanks to Mark for giving up his whole day and for lunch. What a lovely, lovely chip. All right, that's about all I got from Jamaica for you. I'm home next week to get stuck into the AFL footy finals. Give the pickle and the big penguin a massive, massive cuddle until their arms fall off. I miss you guys. Miss you too, eh? Uh, also, a lot of people ask me about MJ, our producer, and what's he all about. Well, his actual name is Michael James. You can actually hear him on the wireless on a Sunday night, 10pm on Triple M in Melbourne, on his own show called Will and MJ. Or you can podcast the show on iTunes, just search Will and MJ. They talk about sport, different sport at times, it got to be said. They're quite the pair, those two. They're funny operators, so check them out, Will and MJ. Okay, until next Thursday, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.